Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Good morning, church. Good to see everybody this morning. Thank you for being here today. A little winter day, a little flurry for you this morning. We get to see God's creation at work. That's just the miracles every day, the, the amazement of His glory and just the small details. I hope you can see that. And as we dig in again this week to Judges, we're going to be here for several weeks. This is going to take us a little bit of time. It's been our habit as a church to go through a couple of books of the Bible every year together. And I, I must admit, this one, this one's going to stretch us. It's certainly stretching me in my study and in my preaching. Uh, but I think, again, today you're going to see such value even looking back several thousand years ago, but dealing with some stuff that we have dealt with as human beings forever. Uh, since the fall of man, this is the kind of stuff we've dealt with. And if you've got a bulletin, uh, you'll notice the title is, is Forgetful Hearts. That The thing that keeps getting repeated throughout, and it, it will for many weeks, is that the people forget. That their ability to remember the Lord is lacking. And sadly but surely, we struggle in this very way. And so I want to remind you of kind of our key verses for the whole series. They come out of Judges 17 and 6 and 21, 25. They say the same thing. They say this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This has to be one of the clear things that's true about our culture. Maybe much of the cultures of the world is that people just kind of do what is right in their own eyes. Whatever makes you feel good, whatever makes you feel uh, like this is what you should be doing, just do that. Don't worry about a higher power or what others might think of you. Do what makes you feel good. Everything did what, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That has been the story of mankind. Now, for several centuries, for several millennia, if you will, people have forgotten the Lord. This is even something I think as Christians we struggle with with certain regularity. And it causes us a great deal of pain. Now, I want, I want to expose something for just a moment before I dig into the text. The idea of forgetting the Lord is not the, the sight, like this, this idea that I have amnesia or something or that I forget that He exists. That, I don't think that's what the text means here when it brings this up. I don't think it means that the Israelites have literally, they don't, they don't remember, hey, there's this God that we call Yahweh. I don't think it's that at all. I think it's rather a heart forgetfulness that they've decided to overlook his existence for something else. Tim Keller, when writing on the subject, I think puts it pretty well. He says, in the Bible, remembering and forgetting have a spiritual significance. We may acknowledge intellectually that something is true, but in our heart of hearts, it does not grab us or penetrate us or control us. So the, the reason that the Israelites, like all of us, continually needed revival was because truths about God, which were once vibrant and real to them, eventually became unreal. Our hearts are like a bucket of water on a very cold day. They will freeze over unless we regularly smash the ice that is forming. Though we know truths about God, we can very easily lose the sense upon our hearts of their reality. That is true of mankind. That is true of the people here. It is true of us. So the question for you this morning, taking this thing across the Bible bridge, not just saying, oh, it's something that happened here. What happens to me? Well, the question is, how have I, where have I forgotten the Lord in this heart forgetfulness sense? Where do you need to be reminded that God is at work in your life? Are you in a season of trouble? I wonder, 
Are you bringing that before the Lord or have you just fought it on your own and dealing with it in your own strength or by the wisdom of man rather than what the Lord might have to say? Are you going through things like warfare in your marriage maybe, in your workplace somewhere else? Have, have you forgotten the Lord in that? Not intellectually, but in your heart. Is He real in this moment, in this time in your life and what you struggle with? Or seasons of plenty? Do you forget Him there too? The people of Israel forgot their Lord, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So God allows some things to take place in their life. There's some hard truths we're going to unpack today. I don't think you're going to love every, every snippet, but I think it'll ring true to you. And it'll help you with your experience and certainly help you with the revival that God desires for you in your heart. And so let's dig in. We're in chapter 3, just chapter 3 today of Judges. We're going to take it in a couple of bites. And what I believe we're going to see here is the Israelites getting caught up in this cycle. This cycle that you're going to see throughout the book of Judges. This cycle of, uh, of fall and then, and then disaster and then they repent and then the Lord saves them. And this just happens over and over. We're going to talk some more about that today. But they get into this season of heart forgetfulness. And eventually they repent and the Lord rescues them. We can remind our hearts, though, our forgetful hearts, to always remember the Lord. You know, it doesn't have to go this way. We don't have to fall into ditches and, him, and, and then get to a desperate place where He can recover us. It doesn't have to go that way. We can choose to remember Him in all things. The text gives us three ways, I believe, to remind our forgetful hearts to remember the Lord. So let's first... Read Judges chapter 3. We're going to take 1 through 11 first. Now, I got to admit, there's some interesting stuff in this chapter. Uh, and the next section is where it really gets dicey. Here's what it says Verse 1, chapter 3. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war. Wow. To teach war to those who had not known it before. Now these are the nations. The five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites. The Sidonians, the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon. From Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord. Which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Verse 7, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of Cushan Reshathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Reshathaim eight years. And when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan Reshathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Reshathaim. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Okay, wow. What do we do with that? Well, let's 
let's, let's examine this a little bit together. I think the first way in which we remind our forgetful hearts is that we can remember to count it all joy when our faith is tested. You'll notice the verse, the first, really the first several verses have this idea about them of a tested faith. We can count it joy when our faith is tested. Now, some of you know your Bibles well enough to know that there's some New Testament evidence of that, and we're going to get to that in a moment. But they forgot the Lord, as we see in verse 7. That's the trouble. That's what causes trouble to be afoot, is that they know Him, perhaps mentally, but they have forgotten Him with their hearts. They, they, they understand who God is, but they've decided, here's what they did, they decided to serve other gods instead of the Lord. That's the problem. That's what causes it. And so what is God doing? That's a good question to often ask of the text is, okay, what's God up to? Well, he's up to some stuff that we don't necessarily like. And it bothers us. It bothers us even as Christians. That, it, that the, the Bible would say something like this. He tests Israel how? By teaching them war which they had not known. Now that doesn't sound very PC at all, does it? That doesn't make a lot of sense. But I believe what the Bible is teaching us here is that there's always going to be another generation coming up who has not experienced the hand of God. For many of you, especially those of you who have walked the earth a little longer than me, God has done something in your life perhaps that He hasn't yet done in mine. You know things. You've learned lessons. You've experienced things that God has shown you. Some of it was painful. But it was required so that you would look more like Christ Jesus every day. And he's doing that in me. He's doing that in my children. And so the unique perspective that we have here in the book of Judges is he has told his people to go into the land and claim it and drive out the Canaans who he has given 400 years to, to repent and move on and they have not done it. So he is using his people as his hand of judgment upon them and his people have not followed through. And so what is he doing? He's teaching them to do the things he's called them to do. Now, I know that's unique. The unique piece is he's training them to take the promised land. But the, the, there's a universal truth underneath that is that every generation God is teaching us and training us to fulfill his plan on this earth. His plan for the Israelites, take the promised land, be the people of God, that the world might see Christ come through this nation. What is he doing in us? He's training us to make disciples of all nations. How is he doing it? Sometimes he has to teach us to war. A different kind of warfare, but a war nonetheless. So let's get into this. What is God doing? He's testing their faith. We see this twice in the first few verses, the word test. This is the idea of to prove. It, it is to assay. That word assay we don't use a lot, but that's the idea of putting gold in, into refinement. And wearing off all of its edges so that at the end you would see gold, pure gold. And that's what God is doing in His people. And He's not done in Judges. God is still doing this. This is the same God. And He loves you enough to give you some, some tests that you might look better on the other side. That you might look more like Christ on the other side. Because that's what He really cares about. He cares about your character. So he's testing your faith. In fact, I would argue an untested faith is not much of a faith at all. It's an unproven faith. This is the very claim that Satan makes of Job. He says, well, of course Job follows you. His life is perfect. So God allows what? Some hard stuff. Harder than any of us have faced. Some terrible testing. To find that Job's faith was what? Proven. It was true. 
And God ends up blessing him in the end. But the point of the story is not so much the blessing. The point is the testing. That they might know war. That they might be taught war. This is what one commentator writes on this. That there was a mandate to drive out the Canaanites and to claim the land as God's gift to them. And that's what God wants to do through them and in them and teach them that. And how are they going to accomplish it? By God's power and His alone. Because there's too many problems in the land. Look at all the list of enemies that we've just covered. These are full-on people groups. These are tribes ready to stay firm in their lands. And they have chariots of iron as we saw last week. Some of them are are called giants in other texts. I, I don't know what exactly that means, but clearly they're bigger. They're bigger. Maybe they're six foot one, six foot two guys like me. Just so you know, the Israelites in this time period are like, they're little. Most of you women are taller than all of these men. These are small people. So they get in here and go, wow, these are humongous dudes with chariots of iron and metal works. And they're not going to be able to accomplish it by human efforts. So what does God want to show them? His hand. And they're going to have to depend on him. And they're going to have to lean on him. And that's what he wants to show them. Now, I'm going to pop up a map. Some of you are interested in this kind of stuff. And if you want this, I know it's kind of small, but this is a map of who they're dealing with, maybe. Is there a map? <laughs> yeah! Um, anyway, if you want this, but this, this is what the Israelites are dealing with. All of these tribes are, are all in the promised land and cluttered in different clusters. It's a mess. They have all these people and they didn't drive... Really, they didn't drive any of them out. Judah almost completed the task, as we read last week. But the northern tribes didn't accomplish it at all. And so these people are lingering, all of these people. And they're all sons. The reason I got curious about this again this week, we've often heard this called the land of Canaan. Why is it called the land of Canaan? Well, Canaan is one of the sons of Ham, one of the sons of Noah. So this is one of the original inhabitants of the land. And he has, guess what? He has sons named Heth, where we get the Hittites. He has, he has Jebus, the Jebusites. He has Sidon, the Sidonians. A lot of these are the sons of Canaan. That's why it's called the land of Canaan. And so he's at war with all these people. Technically speaking, all of these people are related. It's been hundreds of years since they've known that. Interesting fact, all of us are related. Isn't that crazy? But thousands of years separated. And yet we're all sons and daughters of Noah. This is what we're dealing with here. They're living among these people and God wants to teach them, to test them, to show them this. And he's still doing this kind of stuff today. But the war looks different now. There's, I would argue maybe this is an even more tricky war that we fight. Because the Bible often speaks we don't fight against flesh and blood, but, but against principalities and spiritual things. And that's what we're dealing with now, believers. That's what we're dealing with as a church. This is what Paul writes in Ephesians. He says, put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Now that sounds insane to some of you. You're thinking, I don't know, I'm not experiencing that in my life, but you are. There are constantly things causing damage to those around you and in your life. And you don't always know that, wait a minute, it's a spiritual war going on. You may not observe it that way, but it doesn't mean it's not true. It doesn't mean it's not what the evil one or one of his, his minions is doing. And this is the kind of battle we're fighting now. So that's why we, we speak of putting on God's armor, that we would put on the, the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of truth. And these things, we would be prepared for war. We count all these things as joy. 
knowing that the testing of our faith will do something in us that we couldn't do on our own. This is what James writes in James chapter 1. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Let patience have its perfect work, that it may be complete, perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This is why we often joke, don't pray for patience. (laughs) Because if you pray for that, God really wants to answer that. And he will often do it through testing. In fact, I think most of what you pray for, God will give you that in a way you didn't expect. He will grant you those things when you ask for, I want the fruit of the Spirit in my life. God wants to give you that. How's he going to get you there? Well, guess what? The reason you're not those things is because you're, you're broken. The reason you're not loving, you're not joyful, is because you have not made the connection that these things come from God's supply. How's he going to teach you to understand I need God every day, every moment of every day? He may have to bring me low so that I might know I'm not enough. That's what he's doing with Israel. That's what he's doing in my life. First Peter, Peter writes, chapter 1, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want a tested faith. How about you? I want a faith that actually stands up. And the only way I'm going to really get there is if I face the things that I'm facing throughout my life. We're all going to go through different trials. And there's, there's some things that I have to admit, and you need to admit this too. There's some things you caused. And you can't blame those on God. If you made a bad choice, you made a bad purchase, you got with the wrong person, and you didn't ever ask God about any of these things, about relationships, about financial decisions, about career paths, and you're looking at all those things and going, what have I done? Guess what he'll do? All things work for the good of those who love and trust God. Romans chapter 8. He will do it. You've got to trust him with it. But don't blame it on him. And don't look at it as, oh, God is testing me through this. No, he will use it, and you will grow. But there are some situations, my friends, that you didn't cause. And God allows them. It's not necessarily that he causes them. The cancers, the diseases, the sicknesses, the, the broken hearted relationships, the things that you fought your, your guts out to try to maintain this relationship and the person left anyway. Those kind of things, God is testing. He has allowed them. He didn't prevent them. So what's he up to? This is the question, the age old question is, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to Christians? And I understand that sentiment. It's a hard thought. It's why would God allow? Does he care about my tested faith? Yeah. Yeah, he does. Does he, does he care about my comfort? Sure. Does he care more that I look like Jesus? Yes. Does he care about my witness? Because some of us just need a story. I'm sorry, some of us don't have much of a story and we need a story and it's going gonna, it's gonna to take the wilderness, it's going to take battling the Philistines and Canaanites, our own version of those things. Here's what God is doing in my life. All I can do is speak to my experience on this, but I lacked empathy and compassion for so long. I used to ask God, how in the world did you call me to be a pastor with this disposition? Because I'm just, I'm brain man. Right? I just think logically and reasonably about everything. Nothing ever kind of gets to my heart. You know what he's done? Just allowed things to happen in my life that have made my heart break. 
recent things, hard things, watching you and starting to realize, okay, God is doing unique and difficult things, sometimes wonderful things, sometimes difficult things in my people's lives. And these are people I'm spending time with and I care for. And it causes me to change. A tested faith. And there are many things like this. We can count it joy when we encounter trials. When we, can, when we encounter the mountaintops and the valleys that our faith would be, be proven genuine. Now here's the second way, and this one's challenging. We can remember to let godly sorrow lead us to repentance. Boy, this one's not like your, your frou-frou kind of like amazing point, right? You probably won't hear this, and I don't mean to just pick on people, but you're not probably going to hear this point at a progressive church. I mean, this one, this one kind of drives a different tone. We can remember to let godly sorrow lead us to repentance. How? How is that? Well, that's certainly what God is doing in verses 8 through 11. Look at those verses again. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Why? Because they decided to turn to idolatry. They decided to forget the Lord, which means my heart is not for Him. My heart is for idols. It's for whatever I want. I will do what is right in my own eyes. And so God does what? This is an active God here. This isn't passive. He allowed it. No, it says He sold them into the hand of Cushion, king of Mesopotamia. Deal with that. Wrestle with that for a second. Would God do such a thing? Well, He did such a thing. Would God sell his people into slavery? He doesn't just do this once. He does it a lot. He's got a plan for them. He needs a, a contrite, a broken heart. He still, this is what God requires of us. Is that we would say, I am not enough and you are more than enough. My heart is desperate for you. I am made for worship and you and you alone. That's why I'm created. That's why I'm here. God requires that. And sometimes he'll do some wild things to help you get there. Let godly sorrow lead you to repentance. Who is this Cushion Reshethame? I know y'all were impressed by my pronunciation there. I know you got excited about that. I think this is one of those after-the-fact titles that the Jews give. Um, I'll give you an example. Like We've got this person in history we call Ivan the Terrible. right? I doubt that's how he referred to himself. I just feel like he probably didn't unless he was some kind of like Viking warlord, like, but, but he's not. But maybe, maybe this Cushion dude was that way. Because his name, Cushion Resethame, means from Cush, twice wicked. Twice wicked Cushion. Okay, I just feel like he wasn't rolling with that name. But maybe he was. Maybe he was like, dude, I'm full on. I'm double wicked and y'all better watch out. I'm trouble. Who knows? But that's the name that the text gives here. And this man is no small, he's no small matter. Mesopotamia, just so you know, is considered most of the Fertile Crescent. This is a huge landmass. The Fertile Crescent is the Tigris and the Euphrates where they run and then down into Egypt. This is the idea of Mesopotamia. So this man ruled a very vast and large area. And the Israelites get sucked up into this problem. Possibly this Cush was a guy who ruled in Egypt. Cushion, again, is another one of those sons of Noah, one of the sons of the sons of Noah, and often one is, who's of Nubian descent, of African descent. So perhaps he arises from there and then leads a military campaign. What we do know is, and one commentator writes it this way, he was the most powerful of all the enemies of Israel named in the book of Judges. Now, it may not look like much when you read it at first, but if you understand what Mesopotamia is, this guy is powerful. 
For him to have extended his tentacles as far as Judah and southern Canaan meant he was a world-class emperor. So this was a, a big task, a really big task. And I just want to put it this way. Of all of the judges we're going to read about, God starts really well. Well, he's always doing great, but the people of God, they start well. Let's just say that. There's actually a good choice, like the ultimate choice, because they're just going to get worse. By the end, the choices are really slim pickings. So here we've got this Othniel. Othniel literally means lion of God. From the tribe of Judah, whose banner is the lion. He's the lion, lion of God. This dude's got a great name. You can roll with this. If y'all need son's names, Othniel's a good one. All right, that's pretty good. That's got some potent, potency to it. So, and we already know a little bit about this Othniel. He's the one who, who conquers land to win over Caleb's daughter, Aksa, and, and get her hand in marriage. He's got all the pedigree. He's, he's the hero already of the people. And so he's the obvious choice. And none of that stuff matters apart from what we read. The important part of what we read is God raised him up. Verse 9. And what else? The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. All this pedigree and all this wonderful stuff. I'm sure the people looked at him and thought, wow, that's somebody. But apart from the Spirit of the Lord on him and God choosing him, all that other pedigree doesn't matter at all. He's God's man, and he goes on to do God's things. There's literally nothing negative said of Othniel. He's a good dude as far as the world can see. As far as we know from the text, he follows God, and God delivers Cushion, this powerful emperor, into his hands. And there was rest for 40 years. That's kind of... We get the full cycle here of the story. This is the judge's story over and over and over. There's, there's peace. There's fall. There's complete slavery and, and servitude. And then there's repentance. And then there's a deliverer. And then there's rest. And then we start again. Because we're going to get that in just the just next section. Repentance always precedes revival. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. He goes out to war. There's rest. Now, godly sorrow can produce repentance when we remember the Lord. Look at Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led you to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly way, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. We have to come to this place where we go, Okay, I've screwed up. I'm a mess. I need God. I desperately need Him. We, we're never going to see revival in our own lives until we come to that place knowing, I need you. There's where revival begins. Stephen's witness in Acts chapter 3 is very clear this way. He says, repent therefore and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you. Jesus. Here's the question you got to ask yourself on this particular topic. Is, is do you want, in your life, do you really want deliverance? Or you just, do you just want relief? Because these things are different. If you just want relief, that's not the business of God. And there's a lot of things you can do to get relief. A lot of earthly things, and they work. They work. They just don't work completely. They're not permanent. You can drink this stuff away. It works for a season until it becomes its own problem. You can peel things away. You can find relationships that will feed this. There's lots of forms of relief. You can sit upstairs and binge Netflix all day and it might 
At least numb your brain enough to where you don't see the pain. Until the show ends. Until the drugs wear out. Until so many forms of relief and your neighbors, your friends, even you at times, you've done these things and you know the problem is this, they're not eternal. They're not permanent. And I need more and more every time. My body is built in such a way, and I don't think God did this by mistake. He did this on purpose, that we would need something God-sized to fix the problem so that when we try these little steps, we end up going, I need more, I need more, I need more, and it's never enough because the hole is too big. It's too big. My question, my friends, do you want relief or do you want deliverance? God was very patient with the Israelites. It may not look it at, at face value, but he really was. Because he keeps giving them relief. They're not praying for deliverance. They're just praying, God, make the pain stop. And he actually stops the pain by sending a rescuer. But their heart problem remains. And that judge, guess what happens every time? The judge dies. And when he does, the people fall back to their mess because they never got delivered because the deliverance was one of the heart and not of the circumstances. I wonder, guys, do you want freedom from your problems or freedom from your own broken heart? There's a lot of things you can do to free your problems. But this thing, there's nothing on this earth that can fix it. Nothing. Christ can. Is he enough? Is he more than enough to fix that? I want deliverance, my friends. I want true repentance that leads to revival in my life. And I can only get there sometimes. I often can only get there through testing. So in that sense, I'm thankful for who God is and what he does. That he loves me enough to bring me back to him in ways that sometimes are painful. You know, I don't find this too strange, to be fair. I don't personally find this strange because I know a good parent will do this very thing. A good parent will do this. A good parent will allow a child a little bit of difficulty that they might, they might learn. You do that while you still got the ability to kind of shelter that and shield that. Because if you don't, they're going to do it later where there's no protection. So you might as well try to do it while they're still in your house. Oh, son, you know, if, if you touch that hot stove, it's going to hurt. <laughs> I'm not saying you let them do that. That's going to be a pretty bad one. But, but there's things like that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be climbing on that, that couch like that. And then <laughs> they just tumble over because they all have big heads and they don't have good balance. They just come out that way. Okay, well, what did I tell you? I could get up and pick and move and I could do this thing we call helicopter parenting. I just don't think it works. My observation is it fails a lot. So sometimes God does this. I do this as a parent. He's got a certain parameter, but he allows some pain in that. That we might go, wait a minute. I still need you really bad. Okay. And he shows up. Let's read this last section. This is where it's like a drama, man. This is great. The story of Ehud, one of the weirdest stories in the Bible. Verse 12, here we go. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Look, they've forgotten, they've run. And the Lord does what? <laughs> he strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Eglon, the, the, he here is Eglon, he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites. And he went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. That's Jericho, just so you know. 
And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years, half a generation. Then the people of Israel, look what they did. They cried out to the Lord. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Now you're going, why is that in the Bible? You'll find out. The king of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. A cubit is this length from the elbow to the tip of the finger. Roughly about 18 inches on almost everybody. Crazy. Go home and measure it. I'm telling you, it's close to 18 inches. You'll find out. A cubit. Good-sized sword. And he bound it to his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. And now Eglon... (laughs) Eglon was a very fat man. I love the Bible, y'all. So, so not PC at times. You're not supposed to say that. Well, it did. Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent the people away and carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king commanded silence and he sent his attendants And they went out in his presence. And verse 20, Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. This is graphic. The hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed around the blade. And he did not pull the sword out of his belly, I think because he couldn't. And the dung came out. (sighs) This is a children's story. Uh, Verse 23. Then Ehud went out into the chamber, closed the doors of the Ruth chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came. And when they saw that the doors of the Ruth chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when, but when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Serah. And when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of of Jordan against the Moabites, and he did not, and they did not allow anyone to pass over. They killed at that time about ten thousand of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for eighty years. And now a short story about Shamgar, one verse. And after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. There you go. Two more judges, very strange stories. What what do we know? The third way, what does this teach us? That we can remember that God's true Savior came in weakness. Now, there was a lot of different ways I thought about looking at this. First of all, these are very unlikely saviors. These are unexpected saviors in a lot in every way that's true of Jesus too. An unlikely, a certainly an unexpected savior. And a savior who comes 
and weakness. The cycle re-begins here at verse 12. Israel does what is evil. God then allows them to be put in and to force labor under Eglon for 18 years. The cycle is going. And then God raises up this Ehud, whose name means I give praise. He's the son of Gera, of the tribe of Benjamin. Ironically, Benjamin means, Benjamin means son of my right hand. He says, of the Benjamites, who happens to be left-handed. I just think the Bible's funny and ironic. He says he's of the right hand, he's left-handed. Now, why does it tell us that? Well, now, this word in the Hebrew, left-handed, literally means bound or impeded of the right hand. Okay, so what is it saying? Well, some have made the claim that perhaps he was handicapped. Perhaps Ehud had a handicapped right hand, or at least had a, had a deficiency in his right hand, and that's why... He has to be a lefty. My problem with that, though, and we're going to get to this much later, is in Judges chapter 20, there are 700 left-handed Benjamite warriors. God is funny like that. Now, that word left-handed possibly could mean something else. It is far more likely, one, one commentator says, it's far more likely that the Benjamites were specially trained, whereby their right hand would be bound in order to train left-handedness. So they were ambidextrous, is what the Bible is really possibly teaching. This isn't so very far-fetched, because we do this a lot in sports, especially in sports like baseball, that we would work hard to try to be ambidextrous, right? And the, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew here, it literally says that. It says amphopodexion, which is where we get the word ambidextrous. So this Ehud's actually probably a bad dude. He can use either hand. And the reason he rolls in there with his left hand is because it was unexpected. Because he would hide, he somehow hid this 18-inch blade on his right thigh under his clothes. They probably patted him down, saw he didn't have a sheath, patted that, that leg and were like, okay, he's good, let him in. He comes out of nowhere with the lefty, lefty work, I guess. If you think about it, in sword play, you know, if, you're no, if you're not a left-handed person, you definitely would not want to carry with your left. I can't even throw a football or a baseball with my left. It is a mess. So I definitely don't want to be striking or getting in a fight with my left. So It was unexpected. And what does he do with this? <laughs> I have a message for you. I love verse 20 so much. Maybe I'm a little sadistic. I don't know. But I just I think that is so hilarious. I have a message for you. And I think that was actually fully true. And here's why I think that. Here we are. They have retaken the city of Jericho. Where God does this amazing thing. You know the story. Blows the trumpets. Walls come down. This miraculous victory. And now they've lost it. To this very fat guy. Who has no real power. And not only that. They have taken Gilgal. Gilgal is a place where the people of God. Were restored to God. They made sacrifices to him there. He, that, that, that city literally means rolled away. I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt. God does this amazing thing in Gilgal. And now what? There is idols. Idols there in Gilgal. And so he's, he looks. It says, read the verse again. It says he looks and sees the idols there. And he says, I got a message for you. And this is the message. And that's a very graphic spot. Very graphic what you see there in verses 21 through 23. And it is exactly what you think. All of that stuff. It's, don't, the NIV tries to kind of dodge this. and calls it dirt, I think. No, it's, it's that. That word, that Hebrew word there, dung, is, is that. 
And if you knew anything medicine, if you knew things medically, to, to strike someone in the abdomen has that possibility. There's a lot of things that could cause a person to do that in injury. And he sinks it in so far he can't even get the thing out. It's very graphic. And then there's this hilarious thing where those servants are coming up there and I imagine they were smelling something and just thought he's in there doing his thing. What a mess. What a wonderful story. What a wonderful story. The point of it is this. God is at work in this process. He he delivers his people through Ehud and he delivers them in an unexpected way. He does it really in the weakness of the people. Shamgar is this, it's a very brief story of this judge and you won't find much about him if you do an investigation in your commentaries or in your Bible research. There's not a lot spoken of this Shamgar. His name literally means sword. He's perhaps from up near Naphtali. You can pull this up. I know this will be a little hard to see, but Beth Anath is up in the northern part. Anath is up there, so he's the son of Anath. Most commentators think he's from the north. But he kills 600 Philistines with an ox goad. An ox goad is not a tool for war necessarily. It's, a, it's like a shepherd's staff but with like a, a kind of a metalish hook up there that you can use to poke and prod and move around. I don't know if the Bible intends that he's killed these 600 at one time like Samson later. I don't know. But he's a bad dude and he rescues and saves Israel. And again, in an unexpected way, you, you would think Mr. Shamgar, whose name means sword, maybe he'd be good with a sword. No, he's out there with some glorified shepherd staff, wrecking people. It's all very strange, very unexpected. What's the point of this section of Scripture? I think more than anything, it is a reminder that God is doing the work, and He's often doing the work in ways we did not see. You're going to see this throughout your Bible if you spend any time reading that God uses the most unusual people. And He's doing that still. Look at this. Look in the mirror sometimes. He's using some unusual people. You've got a story. Sometimes it's a hot mess. I'm I'm often curious as to why he chose me, and yet I'm convinced he did. And so he's using unusual people all the time. And even in his salvation story, he uses weakness rather than strength. Now, I I know for a fact God is coming again, and when he comes again, it's going to be different. The suffering servant has already come. The conquering king is coming. So I'm convinced of this, but the people were not expecting Christ. God sent Jesus in weakness, taking on human flesh, born in a stable. Nothing special about His appearance. The Bible says this in several places. that There's nothing like amazing about the way Jesus looked. Humble in stature, much like David. He died in our place, yet defeated sin. In a sense, you might call Him the left-handed Savior. An unexpected Savior. An unlikely Savior. Isaiah 53 says he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God. Stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. This is Jesus. This is God's plan. This is in the book of Isaiah. Hundreds of years prior to Christ. 
You should be expecting the unexpected. You should be looking for the left-handed Savior, the weak, because God is going to do something amazing there. Because where Jesus wasn't weak was in his power. He may have been unusual in stature, nothing amazing in the way he looked, but his power was one that could bear the cross for our sake. Enduring the cross, scorning its shame. Remember this, my friend, for you personally, that God chooses you also in your weakness so that you would boast in him. This is what Paul writes to 1 Corinthians. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is what he's doing in every believer. This is part of the testing. This is part of the process. And at the end of the day, we would say, but my God is big. But my God did this. I was this. I was struggling with addiction. I was struggling in my, in my depression. I was struggling in this horrible relationship. I made terrible choices. I thought I did what was right. But this, this dramatic, horrible stuff happened. But God, but God did this. Look what he can do. Look who he is to me. And, and, and those are all just the, the tangible things that I've, I've dealt with. What about the heart problem? I, there's nothing I could do to, to bridge the distance between me and God. It is vast. And I know my, my, my broken thoughts and my heart. And I've messed up so much in my life. It didn't take me long to do that. So what am I going to do about this gap? But God. But God. Through the person of Jesus Christ, set me free, not by my strength, but in my weakness and all by his power. We can remember to come in weakness, not earning. This reminds me of something. I want to close with this story that Paul, who I don't know about you, but I often look at the Apostle Paul as someone worthy of imitation. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And I look at him and go, boy, I think I'd have a hard time really following you. Because you are such a hard charger. Going from city to city preaching and getting stoned and literally walking back into the same city in which they just pelted you with rocks. I'm not there, I don't think. But maybe I could be and I'd like to be. I want to be that kind of man. That kind of follower of Christ. But that very Paul says something that encourages me and here's why. Because I struggle with things that I've struggled with a long time. And I would imagine every one of you does too. That there's some... Whether it's sin or, or, or whether there's some aspect of you that just seems to constantly need redeeming. Constantly. And I don't know why. I certainly don't personally know why. Paul talks about this thing as the thorn of his flesh. This is in 2 Corinthians 12. And it says that Paul learned after praying three times that God would remove his thorn of the flesh. Look what he, removed. Look what he learned. God said to Paul... My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is some hard, hard news. Hard news that Paul gets. God literally says, I'm not going to remove it. I'm not. 
that thorn of the flesh, whether this was something, a physical ailment, maybe he had some sort of sickness, some sort of disease, maybe there was something uh, paralyzed on his body, some think that. I think based on the way he's praying, based on the way it seems his heart is, I think this is a temptation, perhaps a scenario of Paul's. And he prays consistently for it, and God says, this is a reminder of how much you need me. I wonder, I wonder if there's things like that in your life. I have a feeling there might be that there's things that we wrestle with, that we uniquely wrestle with, so that we would be reminded, I need Christ every day. I'm never going to be perfect on this side of heaven. There's never going to be a day where I'm suddenly, I'm sinless. Ha <laughs> ha, look what I've accomplished. And then I might boast in myself. No, God's not doing that. He's not about that. So there's things I may struggle with for years. And years, maybe my whole life, so that I might see them and go, I need you. I need you again today because this, this whole thing is creeping back in again. My anxieties are back, God. My brokenness is back, God. Why am I tempted in this way again, God? It's so that I might look up and not look in. We can remember to come in weakness. This isn't about earning. This is about receiving deliverance. A free gift of grace. That's ready and available if we would look up and take it. Grace, grace, I want it. I want you, Lord. So that my prayer begins to change. And this is the blessing of this whole scripture. Is that the way I interact with God begins to be more and more whole. I want God for who he is and nothing more. I want more of God. I want to know you better. I want your grace. It is sufficient for me. I don't need anything else. I need Jesus. Every day, every moment of every day. And if that's what you're up to, God, I thank you for my trials. I count them joy, in fact, because I'm getting to know you better. And eternity is a whole lot longer than whatever time you're giving me here. I want to get a head start on heaven. Your grace is sufficient. Can you say that with me, friends? Are you going through a time of testing? Count it all joy knowing that God's up to something. That in this testing, your faith would be proven. Are you going through sorrow? Perhaps I wonder if godly sorrow would be there to lead you to repentance. Is there something you should turn back to God about? Are you feeling weak and overwhelmed? Remember, (laughs) that's exactly how Jesus came. And yet he saved you and God is strong in your weakness. Let's pray now, church, together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this story. It's it's an unusual, unusual passage of Scripture. There's some amazing things happening here, but I'm so thankful for the overarching story you're telling in your word. What you started in Genesis, what you finished in Revelation, and and the story you've yet to tell, it's all this grand narrative that, God, you love us, and that, God, you desire us, and that, God, you have saved us. You want for us more than we even want for ourselves. We often pray for a relief. You want to do more than that. You want to deliver. You want to rescue. God, I'm so thankful that you see 20... A hundred, a thousand steps ahead of of what I could even imagine. I'm looking at what's right in front of me. And you want something far more for me than that. And so when I pray, hey, just relieve this pain. Relieve this tension. You might leave it so that I would grow. And I'm thankful for that. Even if it's painful at the time. And God, I I want to shape my life that way. I want more and more for my life to be characterized by a trust, by a confidence, Certainly a remembrance that my life would just echo Christ. 
that people would look in and go, oh, everything's not perfect, everything's not hunky-dory. And yet, that Jonathan, those people at that church, their faith is, is proven. There's some people in the audience right now, Lord, I just want to lift them up to you because they're going through some, some trials and some tests. And you know who you are in the audience, and maybe there's few of you in here, I don't even know what you're going through. Bouts with sickness, bouts with cancer, bouts with broken relationships, broken relationships with our children. Maybe there's, there's something going wrong in the home. Our spouse has left us, something's wrong. Ongoing temptation with sin. A battle we've been fighting, maybe for some of us for decades, for years, we've been fighting against this temptation. The temptation towards Addiction, alcohol, drugs, the temptation towards something else, some other addictive thing. Something causes us to cast our gaze there again. The anxiety, the depression, they're back. All of these forms of struggle and testing and weakness, God, we lay them at your feet right now. Knowing this, you are an omniscient, omnipotent. You can do all things you have. There's nothing you cannot overcome. And so if I'm dealing with this, I know it's passed through your fingers. I know you didn't stop it. That much I know. Because you could have and you didn't. So help me to deal with this in the way that would give you the most glory, Lord. I don't have all the answers, Jesus, as to why this is the thing I'm struggling with. But here's what I can do today. I lay it at your feet. What do you want me to learn from this? This horrible pain, this horrible struggle, this difficult relationship. What would you have me learn? How would you have me look more like your son Jesus today than I did yesterday based on this testing? I want to be pure gold. I want to be refined, but it's really hurting. It's really painful. And God, I need to see you move in it. Would you give me peace and joy that I might count it joy? Would you give me strength and wisdom Would you guide my steps? I trust you. I trust that you've let this pass through your hands for my good. So help me walk the right course in it. Help me to understand what you're you're doing in this. And more than any of this, Lord, help me to not ever be tired of seeking your face and being in your presence because above all these things, I know that's what you desire for me, is that I would know you and enjoy you forever. Dear friend, I recognize maybe you've come today and the things we've been praying, the things we've been reading, the things we've been studying together, they sound wonderful. But this peace about Jesus coming in weakness and saving us and setting us free, that comes by faith and you know that, my friend. And you know that's something you've not done. You've not made the decision to place your faith in the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so you still sit on the other side wondering, what will I do? What will I do with my many trials and struggles? What comes next? What do I do with eternity? And there's so many unanswered questions. I pray today you wouldn't let that stay in the unknown anymore. There's nothing holding you back, my friend. There's no reason to wait. Jesus is calling. And he's been calling you for a long time, wondering, hey, when when will you see me as I truly am to you, your Savior and your Lord? If you're ready today to make that step, that confession of faith, that faith move,
Pray this with me as we read in Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Pray this simple confession with me, my friend. Jesus, I believe you are my Lord and my Savior. I believe that in your weakness you took on the cross and you died for me. For all of my sins, all of my brokenness, all of my guilt and shame. It's all been paid for. I believe that today. I know now what, what God, what you did for me. And what you did to rescue me. To truly deliver me. Not just relief, but true deliverance. I believe that today. And God, I believe that you raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And I have great hope there. Knowing that my sins have been dealt with on the cross. And there is hope in the resurrection, knowing that there's something beyond this place. God, having now saved me, I ask, would you help me to see, see my life through your eyes? Knowing where you're trying to teach me, train me, test me, that I might follow you more closely. And understand your will for me more intimately. Dear friend, welcome to the family of God. If you prayed that with us and we're praying with you the same thing. We want that same thing that, God, you would show us in our many trials, in our ups and our downs, what you're doing in our life, how you're working, that we might line up and imitate Christ, that our lives would be a gospel story on display. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.